I, I want you to open your hearts today and really listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. This message is on many levels. It's on a personal level. In fact, all of God's messages are. They're universal. They're on a personal level. They're on a family level. They speak to the church. They speak to community and they speak to the nations. And today, this message has depth to it that I believe will minister to your spirits and be able to give you some answers for some of the things that we're contending for and, and, and dealing with in the world today. I call this message God or Chance. God or Chance. Uh, I was attending uh, Langton Gotzi's prayer conference that he holds annually. I went to the opening session and uh, he spoke uh, a message. He says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And as he spoke it, God began to speak to me. He said, I want my people to know just how in control I really am. You know, our, 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 our national leaders uh, in Zimbabwe think that Zimbabwe is theirs and the fullness thereof. But the truth of the matter is that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's not owned by any of us. It's not owned by you. you. You may own a farm, but it's not yours. You're just the steward over it while you have it. I own a beautiful house, but guess what? I'm just the steward over it for the season that I own that house. I'm just the steward over the vehicle I drive. I'm very grateful for the vehicle I drive. I'm thankful every day. But I keep a for sale sign in the back seat. Because if God needs the money, if God needs the proceeds, I'm just the steward. And so we have to develop the right attitude towards God and we have to develop the right understanding of who he really is. And there's confusion in the world today. So I'd like you to uh, open your Bibles with me today. You're going to be doing a lot of Bible reading today. And I want you to have a real Bible. Does anybody have a real Bible today? Can you hold your real Bible up? Okay. So there's three things you should have when you come to church. A real Bible, a notebook, and a pen. So what do we need? A real Bible, a notebook, and a pen. Why? Because I didn't prepare this message just to hear myself speak this message or to entertain you, I'm here to instruct you in righteousness, okay? Do you, under, do you grasp that? So tap your neighbor, say, okay, he's going to instruct us in righteousness today. All right. So God or chance? Uh, you know, when we follow the Israelites, their exodus from Egypt, uh, God commanded his people to build a tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was a large tent that would function as their center for worship. But it was very intricately designed. In fact, it was, had to be done to a specification that God designed. Now, I spoke about the church has always been with us. Well, this was the church in the wilderness, and it was where God met with his people. Now, the innermost section of the tabernacle which was curtained off, was known as the Holy of Holies. And the high priest could go into that place one time a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of God's people and for himself one time a year. It was there in the Holy of Holies that the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is not the Noah's Ark. Some people get that mixed up. Uh, it's the, the Ark of the Covenant uh, was a large gold-covered chest. And inside the chest were kept the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone, Aaron's rod that budded, and a pot of manna. 
that God had provided for them. God preserved this manna and how he preserved his people when they were wandering in the wilderness. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant was adorned with two golden cherubim, angels. And in the middle of that, it was considered and believed to be the expression of the throne of God on earth as a reflection of the throne of God in heaven. Does that make sense? Are you following me? Simply put, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, was the most sacred vessel in all of Jewish religious history. Now, it also had a military significance for the Jews. When Moses and Joshua led the Israelites in their journey to the promised land and in their conquest of Canaan, they always went into battle carrying with them the ark. The priests would carry the ark of the covenant into battle with them. And when the throne of God accompanied the armies of Israel, they were victorious. Did you get that? God was with them in battle. And... He fought for them. Now, sadly, like you and I today, the people eventually began to associate victory and battle with the ark itself and not with God. How often do you and I associate our victories with something besides God himself. Prayer? Are your victories coming because you prayed a lot? Now, I believe in prayer. But let me tell you something. My victory didn't come only because of my prayer. Some people would tell you that it's holy oil or holy water. That your victory... And they become attached to holy water. We have a whole prophetic movement that you can't get a victory without buying some merchandise. And people are attached to, they, they run around. I mean, you know, we took, we took a maid with us one time to Kenya. And we took a number of you with us to Israel. It always amazes me how you go back to your African superstitions. Filling bottles up with water from the Dead Sea with a little bit of sand in it. Filling up water bottles from the ocean, in the Indian Ocean of Kenya, with a little bit of sand in the bottom of it to prove that it's from there. Why? Because we're superstitious. Because somehow... Something happened with water sometime or something happened that there was a miracle and, and now that's become our faith in water, our faith in oil, our faith in something besides God. This is historical throughout scripture. You'll see that Gideon led a great battle and won and, and you know the story of Gideon. But afterward, the people began to worship. After he died, they worshiped the ephod of Gideon. As though that had power, and they forgot that it was God that delivered, not Gideon. The children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, and uh, they were being bitten by serpents, and God told Moses to raise up a serpent in the wilderness as a picture of Christ who would die on the cross and he says, anyone who would look upon that serpent would be saved. And yet later on in history, the people are worshiping the serpent. They forgot that it was God that saved them, not the serpent that was raised up on a cross. That was only a picture. Are you getting the picture here? Eventually, you know what he had to do? Moses had to grind, or they had to grind that serpent up into fine powder. Made everybody drink it. They said, this is crazy. We can't keep worshiping the serpent. 
Are you listening to me? There's hundreds of examples of that throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament. We begin to associate our victories. We begin to associate our relationship, not in, or our, our victories in battle, not with God, but with some other entity. I grew up as a Catholic, and we used to have all kinds of entities besides God. It no longer became veneration of a saint, or veneration, which is worship. It became, hey, this is another means to get my prayer answered. Another angle. I had to get an angle to get to God. God says you have grace to come boldly before his throne to find help in time of need. Now, we see this story, and I want you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel, the fourth chapter. And it recounts the time when the Israelites, the time and the place where the Israelites go into battle against the Philistines. But this time, they're not accompanied with the ark. And they suffer a great defeat with the loss of 4,000 men. And we read here in the third, chapter, the third verse, it says, when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. See, the people are attributing their defeat to God. But they're looking to the ark to save them. Did you see that? Put that back up there. I want you to see it. I want you to look at it. Well, look in your Bible. The people came and they say, why has the Lord defeated us? Do you ever get confused like that? Do you ever sometimes get confused between, well, you know, why did God allow this to happen? And then you go to the prayer room. If I pray, who are you praying to? Is it prayer that's going to save you or is God the Savior? If God allowed it, then how can God take it off through prayer? Are you hearing me? We get very confused in the body of Christ. This is, this is serious stuff. And, 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 and God will speak to your heart about your condition. So the Bible talks about it. So, so the ark, the, they, they bring the uh, ark to the Israelite camp. And it says, when the soldiers saw the arrival of the throne of God, they gave a tumultuous, thunderous cheer. Now, across the valley, the Philistines are camped, and they hear this cheer. They called it the shout of the Lord, the shout of God. God has entered the camp. And only problem is that the ark entered the camp. And uh, the Philistines, the Bible tells us that they knew they were in deep trouble. Because this was the God who had destroyed the Egyptians before them. Before them. Look, at, look at verses 5 through 8. It says, when the ark of the Lord of the covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Man. Can you imagine that? Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what is all this shouting in the Hebrew camp about? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of the, these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Now see their mindset? The Philistines are frightened because of, they call it gods, but we know it was God. Now, at this time, the Israelites are led by a priest, his name is Eli, and uh, he's their priest and he's their judge and he's a godly man. And he has uh, served the people for decades. But he had one serious defect. He had two sons. 
Hophni, Phinehas. They were also priests, but they did not share Eli's godliness. And they committed all kinds of desecration of their sacred vocation. But the problem was Eli never disciplined them. So God had spoken to Eli through a prophet warning him that judgment was going to fall upon his house. And that Hophni and Phinehas would die on the same day. Look at 1 Samuel, verse 30, uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 30 through 34. It says, therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me I will, those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength. And all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you and they will both die on the same day. Now let me just explain something about blindness. You notice one of the curses that God spoke there, he says your family will be, if they do live, they will be blind and they will be eventually killed. The blindness of Eli was not so much a physical blindness as it was a spiritual blindness. He had served God, but he became spiritually blind. He became fat. That picture of being fat means that he became satisfied. He became contented. He became totally comfortable in his own self and was no longer looking to God. He couldn't see God. Although he'd served God, he was no longer seeing God. He was no longer seeing spiritual things. He was no longer spiritually aware. He was also not physically aware either. But yet he still was a judge in the gates of the city. And this can happen in our lives if we aren't particularly careful of who God is and how he operates. We have to trust him. And it can go down through the iniquities into our children and our children's children. We can bring curse upon our families when we become lax in what God called us to be and called us to do. Does this bear witness with anybody? Tap your neighbor. Say, I think he's talking about you today. It's not me. Okay? So this prophecy came to fulfillment when the Israelites, who were jubilant to have the ark of God in the camp, went back into battle against the Philistines. Hophni and Phinehas are carrying the ark into battle with them, and the unthinkable happens. The Israelites did not prevail. In fact, where they lost 4,000 in the first battle, in this battle they now lose 30,000. 30,000 Israelite men fell, 1 Samuel 4.10. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great and Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. Verse 11 says that the ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. But more importantly, not only did Hophni and Phinehas die, but the pagan Philistines captured the ark of God. The Philistines now have the ark of God. Can you imagine? What a day. After the battle, a messenger ran back to Shiloh 
with the bad news. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and he was blind, and he was overweight. And in 1 Samuel 4, it says this. It says, speaking of Eli, he says, who was 98 years old, whose eyes had failed, and he could not see. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the gate, by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man, and he was heavy. And he had led Israel for 40 years. Now, these are significant things. 40 is a significant thing. This is an end of an era and the beginning of a new era. 40 is a very significant year in biblical understanding and in your life. 40 is a very significant year in the life of a church, in the life of a nation. We're approaching 40 years in the life of this nation it's, since its independence. I believe there's a significant time coming around our 40th year. Now you have to understand, I, 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 I'm, I'm just saying that new beginnings take place after 40 years. 40 is an end of, it's a time of judgment. It's at the end of judgment. How long did the children of Israel wander in the wilderness? 40 years. Are we listening? Okay. So here this guy is, Eli. He's seated at the gate. And there he's... As is Israeli custom, and even today, if you go with us to Israel, you'll see that the gates are structured in such a way that the men would sit in front of the gates, and they would pass judgment. You couldn't come into the city without talking to a city elder. You couldn't do business except at the gates. And these men presided over all business. They presided over everything that happened, and they then brought judgment for issues concerning Things of a spiritual and natural nature. And he was, this guy was waiting anxiously for news of the battle. Can you imagine? His sons, the ark is out there. He's in charge of this. He's the, and, 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 and he's anxious to hear. And he sees the messenger coming. And the, the messenger comes and tells him that, there was, that Israel had been defeated. That his sons were dead. That the ark has been captured. <laughs> this big old guy, Eli, falls over in his chair. Oh, I can just see him. Oh, boom, and breaks his neck. He's gone. At the same time, this is, this is a fantastic story. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. When she heard the news of the defeat and the death of her husband, she went into labor. And she gave birth to a son. But she died as a result of her labor. But before she died, she named the boy Ichabod. And that word Ichabod is a very important name. It means the glory has departed. Now, there's a very famous beer in America and one night I was in a meeting and a woman stood up in the meeting and she started crying out, the Lord is angry at you. And he, I see the name written over this church, Michelob. Now, Michelob is the beer. She was trying to say Ichabod, but she got Michelob. And I mean, it did not have the desired effect because as she yelled out, Michelob, the whole place erupted into laughter. It's like, <laughs> so God says, Michelob over the church, is that wonderful? <laughs> but one thing we don't want to see is God say Ichabod over his church or over his people or over our lives for disobedience of, what he, of who he is. It means the glory has departed. 1 Samuel 19 through 22. You can read that on your own time. The Philistines, then we're told, took the ark of God to a city, one of their city-states called Ashdod. Now Ashdod was a, they have five city-states in 
the, the Philistines had five city-states. And one of them was named Ashdod. This was the capital city of that state. It would be like uh, maybe our provincial capitals. We have provincial capitals where they have city capitals. And so this city was their capital, and they sent this ark to Ashdod. And they took it to their most holy temple, which was devoted to a god named Dagon. Now, Dagon is the fish god. And uh, if you see pictures of Dagon, you'll see that it looks kind of peculiar. Uh, many people even believe that the, the mitre that's on the head of many of the bishops, you know, the Catholic bishops that wear mitres, is symbolic of the fish god. You can go do your own research. I had a bell here. I just tell you, do your own research, okay? Uh, but the, do your own research. Go find out. But the, the fact of the matter is that this was a very prominent, very powerful God throughout the ages, the fish God. Of course, fertility and food and these kind of things are very important to this, uh, this, in, in this age for people. And it was their principal deity, the Philistines' principal deity. So in the temple, they placed the ark beside or at the feet of Dagon at a place of humiliation, a place of subordination. 1 Samuel 5, verse 1 through 2 says, After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. They then carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. But here's the amazing thing. The next morning they found the statue of Dagon fallen on its face as if Dagon was prostrate before the ark of God or before the throne of Yahweh. The priest propped up their deity back on its feet. But the next day the statue was not only fallen over on its face, but its hands and its head were broken off and its body and its feet. So all that was left was the torso. 1 Samuel 5, 3 through 4, you can read it. It says, the people of Ashdod rose early the next day. There was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back on his, in his place. But they followed the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon falling on his face in the ground, on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Now, to make matters worse, a plague broke out in Ashdod. A plague uh, of, apparently, of a plague of uh, tumors and mice. Now, these tumors, if you go study in the Bible, do your own research, ring, 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 do your own research, were hemorrhoids. Anybody ever have a bad case of hemorrhoids? I wouldn't know what that's about. But these were mega hemorrhoids because uh, these were the tumors. They were, and they plagued the people. And then mice. It was probably a, a black plague. It was rats. They came and they were causing like the black plague. They, there was a, there was a, but there was an outbreak that was killing the people. 1 Samuel 5, 6 says, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. You'll see later the devastation was these rats, these mice. Okay, and we all know what can happen with the, you know, black plague or whatever comes from rodents. The man, the man of Ashdod, or the, men, the people of Ashdod, Ashdod, suspected that these afflictions were coming from the hand of God. Kind of a good suspicion, don't you think? So they convened a council to debate whether it was God or what was it. And the decision was made to send the ark to another Philistine city-state called Gath. So, in 1 Samuel 5, verses 7 through 8, it says, when the people of Ashdod saw that saw what was happening, they said, hey, the ark of God of Israel must not stay here with us because the hand, his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and they asked them, what shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? And they answered, have the ark of God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of, uh, of, God, to Is of, of, Is the ark of God of Israel. Now, 
Here's the amazing thing. The same afflictions began to happen in Gath. The people of Gath decided then to send the ark to Ekron, another city-state. They said, hey, we don't want it. It's causing us the same problems, and they ship it off to Ekron. Okay? Now, but news of the afflictions had already preceded the ark. So by the time it gets to Ekron, the people refused to receive it. They said, uh-uh, we don't want that thing here. No way, we're not having no ark in this town, I'll tell you what. And after seven months of trials, the Philistines finally realized that the ark had to be sent back to Israel. Look at this. We'll read uh, 1 Samuel 5, 9 through 6, 1. But after they had removed it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with outbreaks of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to kill us and all of our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and they said, Send the ark of God away. We don't want the ark of God of Israel. Send it back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death has filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors. And the outcry of the city went up to heaven. When the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory for seven months. Now, how many of you know that returning such a sacred object, such a sacred piece of military and worship equipment to Israel, Israel is no simple task. How do you do it? The Philistines assembled their priests and their diviners, and they, and they sought, how do we do this? They sought, how do we return this ark? And the priests and the diviners recommended they send it back with guilt offerings. And the, the guilt offerings were five golden tumors, five golden hemorrhoids, and five golden mice. First Samuel 6, verse 20, verses 2 through 6 says, The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the, of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him, to him, to him. Are you getting this? Without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and then you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, what guilt offering should we send him? They replied, five golden tumors, five golden rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers. Because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country, and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your God and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God deals dealt harshly harshly with them, they did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? This is interesting history, folks. But you have to understand how does it apply to you and I? We serve God, and God is with you. God is, on our, God is with us. God's on our side if we obey him and we truly serve him. Now, this story gets really interesting now, so pay attention. The priests and the diviners told the Philistine leaders to prepare a new cart to put the ark and the golden tumors and the mice on. Then they were to find two milk cows that had never been yoked and hitched them to the cart. Now you have to understand, I'm going I'm to explain that to you, but these milk cows aren't dairy cows. When they say milk cows, what these are, these are cows that have just given, just calved. Now once you calve, maybe some of you ladies might understand what I'm talking about. What happens once you give birth to a baby? In a couple of days, your breasts go into business. And what happens if those babies do not take the milk off of your breast? Has anybody had pain before? 
There's a pain there. Well, it's the same for a cow. Once their udder is full, they need a baby to come and take the pressure off. Does, does that make sense? Okay, just to let you know. Not only that, they're to find two cows that had never been hitched to a yoke, never been yoked at the hitch, and, and, and they're supposed to hitch them to a cart. Finally, they were to take these cows and the calves away from them. Once all this was done, they were to release the cart, but they were to watch which way or where the cows took it. They said, if it goes up by the way of their own land to Beth Shemesh, he says, then it was the God of Israel who has done this great harm to us. But if not, then we know that his hand has struck us. And I want you to see the words. Put that, put that scripture up, okay? In 1 Samuel 6, 9, I want you to watch this. It says, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it is not the hand, his hand that struck us, but it happened to us by chance. One version says by coincidence, but by chance. Now, here's the question I have to ask. Is there such a thing as chance? Hmm? I'm going to ask that question again, a little bit differently in a minute. Because we're going to have to think a little bit today. It's, it's vital that we understand how the Philistines stack the deck. To determine conclusively if it was God of Israel that had caused their afflictions. They found cows that had just calved, number one. Number two, what is the natural inclination of a cow that is just mothered, just, just calved, a mother cow, after it's given birth? Well, if you take that mother away from her calf and you let her go free, immediately she's going to return to that calf. She's going to go back to that calf and say, hey, get busy. I need you to take some pressure off here. Likewise, these cows, they chose cows that had never been yoked, never been trained to pull a cart or a plow. Now, in such a case, if they've never been trained, a cow is likely to struggle against the yoke and is really less likely to work with another cow. In fact, they're going to end up jostling and you're not going to go anywhere. With these issues... Put into the experiment, it was very unlikely that this cart was going anywhere, least of all towards the land of Israel. If the cows were able to pull the cart at all, they would not want to go towards Israel. They would want to return to those calves. So they leave the calves bleeding over here. Ah, you know, if you've ever heard a cow bleat, a, 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 a calf bleat. They leave the cows bleeding, the calves bleeding, and, the, and, they, and they put the cows in this yoke, and they say, okay, take off with the ark. So the cart, what does it do? Immediately, it goes towards Israel. And the, and the Philistines realize that it was the God of Israel that was orchestrating and the afflictions that had come upon the Philistines since the capture of the ark. Now, although these people, the Philistines, had gods that they served, they were really atheists. Why do I say that? Well, you know, when I was in Bible school, I used to uh, love certain topics. We used to debate certain topics. One of them was the topic of, well, we had the topic of predestination and then the topic of providence. These, these are very powerful topics. And, and theologians have debated these, these, these ideas for a long, long time. 
But in the opening lines of the Westminster Catechism, in chapter 3, entitled, Of God's Eternal Decree, here's what it says. This is the third chapter. The first two chapters uh, have to do with, you know, the nature and, and, and of God and, 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 and godly rule. But this is, the, uh, the third chapter is of God's eternal decree. And it says, and, and this is the first sentence in it. It says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own free will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Leave that up there. I want you to look at that and I want you to think about that. How many of you believe that? How many of you believe that? God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own free will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever happens. If you believe it, raise your hand. That's about six of us, okay? How many of you don't believe it? Okay. Let me ask you another question. How many of you would describe yourself as atheists? If you raised your hand the second time, indicating that you did not agree with the confession, why didn't you raise your hand if I asked you to be an atheist. This is a tough question, I know. If you don't believe that God ordains everything that comes to pass, it's very hard to believe in God. The confession from the, this Westminster Catechism is not Presbyterian, it is really Christian. It's a confession that offers a distinction between theism and atheism. If God is not sovereign, God is not God. Think about it. Just think about this. Just follow me. If there's even one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside of the scope of God's sovereign ordination, then we cannot have the slightest confidence that any promise of God has ever, that he's ever made about our future can come to pass. This is why I say that the Philistines were atheists. They allowed for the possibility of an event in this world caused by chance. The possibility that Against all the evidence, the afflictions that they had endured had happened by coincidence. They were allowing for a maverick molecule. So they were allowing for the possibility of a God that was not sovereign. And a God who is not sovereign is not God. The whole message of atheism is that chance has causal power. Now, causality is a very important thing. We have to understand about causality because anything that has personality has causality. Now, that's a big statement, I know. But as a person, you can cause things to come into effect. Does that make sense to you? Because of your personhood. But listen to this. Again and again, this view is expressed that we don't need to attribute the creation of the universe to God. For we know that it came to be through space plus time plus chance. That's what we're taught. This is nonsense. There is nothing that chance can do. Chance is a perfectly good word to describe a mathematical possibility. But it is only a word. It is not an entity. Chance is nothing. It has no power because it has no being. Therefore, it can exercise no influence 
over anything. Yet, we have so-called sophisticated scientists today that make sober statements declaring that the whole universe was created by chance. This is really to say that nothing caused something. How does nothing cause something? And there is nothing, no statement, more anti-scientific than that. Everything has a cause, and the ultimate cause, as we have seen, is God. Everything has a cause. Now, I'll tell you what, here's where I struggle. Because when I speak to many of you, you'll tell me that you believe that a dead ancestor caused it. And you inspect everything. Oh, no, 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 we have to go back now. Let's go back. Let's go back here. Let's see now, great-grandfather, which father? No, that way, which member of the family? Oh, he has, the, he has an Ngozi spirit. He has, my, he, oh, he has the, my father's spirit. I see it on him. And, and my father murdered somebody, and that's why this person died. He must be the murderer. Just tap your neighbor and say, he, I have no idea what he's talking about today. <laughs> Tell your other neighbor, he says, no white man should know this much about us. You see, when the Philistines let the cows go, they went straight up to Beth Shemesh. They went along the highway, the highway, lowing as they went, the Bible says. And they turned neither to the right or to the left. 1 Samuel 6.12. The cows pulled the cart smoothly, even though they'd never been yoked together. They walked away from their calves, even though they were lowing as they went. When, you, when, when a cow is lowing as it went, it's in pain. It says, hey, I need those calves more than I need anything else. Are you following me? And they went straight toward Israel. Did all of this happen by chance? No. The cows were guided by the invisible hand of God, the God of providence. Therefore, the Philistines knew that the same hand had afflicted them. The hand of God. Now, I'd like to get into the details of how that works. Because many people get offended when I talk like this because they think, well, that would make God evil. No, God is not evil. God is incapable of evil. God is morally, spiritually who he is. But he created man who is like God except for one thing, sin. And it's because of sin that we can choose and we choose to do evil. And when we do evil, we suffer. When we disobey, we suffer, and it opens avenues for us. Here in Zimbabwe, and around the world for that matter, every few years, every five years here, we have a change of government, or we're supposed to. <laughs> the constitution of our nation and the nations of the world have term limits on presidents and how long a president and sometimes even a government may serve. And then here's an amazing thing. After a pre you can see this in America. After the president, it didn't happen for Donald Trump, but it happened for Barack Obama. But uh, after the president is elected, they have what's known as the honeymoon period. Everybody's going to give the guy a chance. It's like, <laughs> all right. But then usually after about the first 100 days, 200 days, People start getting angry. At, hey, I don't like this decision. I don't like that decision. I don't want that. And they talk about their government. They talk about their president. Get the bum out of office. Anybody know what I'm talking about? What do you spend your time talking about? Huh? 
We're talking about politics. We're talking about, you know, what's wrong with our country? What's wrong? Why, why doesn't the civil service do it? Yeah, yeah. we, we all have these issues. Is that right? So by human standards, governments come and go in most nations. No earthly ruler maintains power forever. Now that's true. God, however, is seated as the supreme governor of heaven and earth. He too must put up with people who are disenchanted with his rule. He must put up with people who object to his policies, who resist his authority. But even though God's very existence can be denied, his authority can be resisted, and his laws can be disobeyed, his providential government can never be overthrown. We have to understand this. We have to understand who God is. Look at this. In Psalm 2, the Bible says, Why do the nations, uh, the nations, why do they conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is the Messiah. When you come against the anointed, you come against his anointing, those who are anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. What you're seeing in the world today is people that do not want the change or the shackles of Christianity. They do not want the, the change or the shackles of morality. They do not want the change or the shackles of obeying God. They do not want the change or the shackles of God. But they want God or they rather have, they like the ark. They like the, they like the entertainment of the church, the praise of the church. They like, hey, I go to church, and because I go to church, no, church is not God. God is God. Church is not God. God is God. Just because you come to church doesn't make you a Christian. Any more than sitting in a garage makes you a Volkswagen. So those who are interested or invested with earthly authority, the Bible says, are taking counsel together to plan how to rid the universe of the authority of God and his son. So what is God's reaction to this conspiracy? Well, in Psalm 2 verse 4, it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. See, the kings of the earth set themselves up in opposition to God. They make pacts against God. You don't think there's pacts against God? Every one of you that work in the United Nations, you know there's pacts against God. When you fund abortion, when you fund LGBT, when you fund sex workers, I don't care where you come from, you know that those are violations of God's law. When aid to our nation is tied to accepting policies that have never been in African culture, there's something seriously wrong. And yet we're silent. Why? Why are we silent? make these pacts, they make treaties, they encourage each other, they make resolves to overthrow the king of the universe. That's what they're doing. We don't want your bond, we don't want your Christianity. There's going to come a, a backlash against Christians from wicked people who don't want our God. They don't want our values. They don't want our family values. They don't want our moral values. They don't want our spiritual values. They don't want our God. But when God looks down at all these that are assembled against him, all these assembled powers, he doesn't tremble with fear. The Bible says he laughs. He laughs, and it's not a laughter of amusement. Don't, don't get me wrong. He's not, ha ha, this is, no. 
It's a laughter of derision. It's a laughter that a powerful king expresses when he holds his enemies in contempt. But he doesn't just laugh. Look at Psalm 2, verse 5 through 6. It says, he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, on my holy mountain. God will rebuke the nations, the rebellious nations. And he's going to affirm the king that he's seated in Zion. By the way, you have to understand that when I talk about nations, some of you are so attached to Zimbabwe that, you know, this is your country. And I have no problem with loving Zimbabwe. I grew up in America, and I have no problem with, uh, I have a heart towards that country. But I'm not, although I'm a citizen of both nations, I'm a resident of both nations, my citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Your, if, if your citizenship is in anything but God, if you're trusting in Zimbabwe to be your deliverer, you're going to be in trouble. And if you're trusting in your ability to make a plan with somebody in power to get, get your, for your salvation, you're in trouble. Our trust is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Are you listening to me? So in closing, I want to share a concern that I have. I'm reading Christian magazines. I hear things being preached from the pulpit today in many of our churches. We have an image of God as being full of benevolence. We see him as a heavenly servant, a bellhop that can be called upon when we need room service. Or we see him as a cosmic Santa Claus who is ready to shower us with his gifts. Somebody who is pleased to do whatever we ask him to do, whenever we ask him to do it on our terms. This seems to be a prevalent message in the body of Christ. Meanwhile, he gently pleads with us to change our ways and to become his sons and come to his son Jesus. We don't usually hear about a God who commands obedience. We don't hear about a God who asserts his authority over the universe and insists that we bow down to his appointed Messiah. Yet in Scripture, we never see God inviting people to come to Jesus. Oh, would you like to come to Jesus? No. No, that's not how it works. He convicts us of treason if we don't choose to come to Christ. A refusal to submit to the authority of Christ probably will not land you in too much trouble with the church or with government. But I believe it will create a very severe problem with God. What am I trying to say today? I believe that we put our trust in something besides God. If your trust is in the fact that you walked an aisle one day and you think you're a Christian, the Bible says, show me fruit, meat for repentance. There's got to be fruit in your life. If you think that just running into the church and rubbing shoulders with believers is going to cause you to become holy or cause God to give you victory if you associate with the victorious, you're sadly mistaken. We can get our directions crossed. God is God. God is sovereign. And God wants to be God of your life. Yes, he wants you to be father to you. He wants to meet your needs. He wants to be a blessing. He is a blessing. And he'll bless you so that, he'll, so that you could be a blessing. But more importantly, he wants to be God in your life. 
and he wants to have his place. God is first. God is number one. He's not something we put on the side. He won't be put on the side. He won't be number two. And he won't be displaced with whatever we've displaced him with, whether it be an ark relationship with God today. There's only one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius, not one of the trillion pantheistic gods of Greek mythology or Norse mythology or the Indian, Hindus, one God and one Savior, Jesus Christ, His Son, one Holy Spirit, three in one. We have to come back to this, folks. God is not to be trifled with. He's not our convenience. He's to be worshipped and loved. He 